Welcome to season two of The Trip That Changed Me, a podcast about transformative travel experiences hosted by me, Esme Benjamin, editor of Full Time Travel. Coronavirus made it incredibly difficult to travel this year, which is why I believe we need stories like the ones on this podcast more than ever. Live vicariously with me every week as I Zoom with entrepreneurs, writers, entertainers, and everyday adventurers to discuss a journey that shifted their mindset, ignited a new calling, expanded their heart, or ushered in a new chapter. My guest this episode is John Hudson, a survival instructor, broadcaster, writer, public speaker, and training consultant whose specialist work takes him to some of the most remote and extreme environments in the world. John happens to be the British military's chief survival, evasion, resistance, and extraction instructor, a profession that has landed him a role on Discovery's primetime show, Survive That, also known as Dude, You're Screwed in the US. I caught up with John over Zoom to discuss the trip that set him on a path to becoming a top survival expert an escape and evasion challenge in the Bavarian mountains back when he was a university student and aspiring pilot with the Royal Air Force. Besides being very fascinating, the survival knowledge John shares in this episode offers a lesson in resilience, one that feels especially relevant right now. John Hudson, welcome to The Trip That Changed Me. Hi, thanks very much for the invite, Esme. I'm so excited to speak to you because I've always been very curious about survival trainings. Have you? Have you done any? No, and I think I'd be terrible at them. But it's definitely one of those conversations that my friends and I have where we're like, we should probably know more practical skills, especially after a year like this when it really highlights the fact that you know nothing at all about surviving. Well, I think you've got this far. You've done all right. It's a pass. That's a good point. But I'm kind of curious about your childhood because obviously... A profession like yours, it takes a very specific type of disposition. So I'm wondering, you know, if there are any sort of formative experiences that you had when you were young that kind of built your fortitude and your ability to, you know, do hard things. Okay. I don't know if there was any kind of specific one thing, Esme, but um, we used to, our holidays when I was younger, we never really did uh, anything like a beach holiday or or that kind of, uh, you know, longish trip. I grew up in the north of north of England, and we would go on walking holidays because we had a family friend who, you know, had a connection over in the Yorkshire Dales, and we'd borrow this old guy's holiday cottage for um, a week at a time. So, for those of your your listeners who know that part of the world, the Yorkshire Dales is like in the, the top of the Pennines, up up in the middle of the UK, um, and it it rains. And if it isn't raining, it, you know, it's gonna, isn't it? It's like so. I think while I was enjoying walking holidays, I, my friends at school were probably all getting really, you know, deep suntans in the eighties over in Mallorca and things. I was just, I was just, um, I was just kind of brainwashed into thinking that walking in rain was fun. So I suppose, and I did genuinely enjoy it. But then everyone else was enjoying it, so I, you know, you're going to go along with the with the, the group, aren't you? So I suppose that helped a little bit. I don't know. I just I've always liked being outside, and I don't want to bang the old the old drum about you know kids don't go out enough these days. But we just used to be sort of let loose, get out from under your parents' feet, and, and run off across the fields near where we lived. So that kind of uh, got me into the outdoors, I suppose, just the access to it. I feel like if you're a British person and you say you're an outdoors person, then you really are an outdoors person because it takes a lot of perseverance in the UK to remain outdoors. 
Yeah, the shades are great, though, isn't there? I've met some amazing people on my travels, like guys up in uh, up in Alaska, and their version of being an outdoors person is completely different. You know, they've got backyards the size of the UK with nothing in it but grizzly bears. So it's certainly it's certainly not as extreme as that. Hello, Dan, if you're listening. But the rest of the the rest of the stuff we do is it, yeah, it's it's mostly rain and wind lashed, isn't it, over where I live. It really is. And I feel like, I mean, I don't know why, but I struggled the whole time I lived in the UK. Mm. I never had appropriate outdoor wear. It wasn't until I got to New York where I was like, I should probably buy a down coat and some snow boots and the rain jacket. <laughs> I was just walking around with my tiny umbrella. Maybe that's like a Southern thing. <laughs> Maybe in the North, you're better prepared. I think it's, I think outdoor gear is, a, is easier to get these days. And it was my experience as well. I didn't have proper outdoor gear when we used to go on these uh, rain lashed walking trips. It was literally like the the, uh, the trainers that I would wear to play football down at the park and then probably shorts because it'd be a summer holiday. And if, you, if it rained, you know, you either got wet and dried off later or maybe pull on some, some tragic plastic cagoule. And that was, <laughs> that was about it. And it maybe stretch out towards a hat. I don't know. But yeah, it, we were certainly the same. It was, it was only in my 20s that I started to become a bit of a gear pest and start getting better clothing. And you stayed in the North for university as well. You went to an art college in Leeds, which is in a city in Yorkshire, and you studied design. What were your career aspirations at that age? Oh, wow. Uh, design at art college was amazing. It was great. I had a, um, I had a kind of a circuitous route to get to that. I was sponsored by the, the Royal Air Force initially, and um, in, a, in, rather, in a rather dull subject, I was, a, I was initially going to be an aeronautical engineer. Mm. over in Salford and then uh, I had a, I had a like a hiccup in the path the, the medical people scratched their chins about me for a little bit too long and, and that door slammed on my fingers when I was about I was probably 18 19 and I, I did one of those sort of teenage impulsive what shall I do instead and I'd always enjoyed drawing I was you know reasonably good at it um, so I thought well engineer I just spent a an afternoon in the engineering labs at Salford and this is like pre accessibility to loads of laptops I'd written down a set of numbers every 30 seconds for three hours during this experiment that we've been made to do. And it was so soul crushingly boring. <laughs> I was like, this, this is not for me. I can't bear this. So I, I got in touch with the, uh, the, the guy who was my tutor. I had the medical faff. I was like, right, I was only really doing the aeronautical engineering to get into the RAF. So I switched paths to go to art college because I'd enjoyed it. And I thought, well, you know, how bad can it be? If it's something that you've got a, a little bit of latent talent for, then Hopefully some other door will open now. This one's been smashed on my fingertips. And, and luckily it did. And I, I went from Salford Art College over to Leeds to do my degree. And it was while I was at Leeds, still, you know, working hard to become a designer and, you know, doing okay, um, that the Air Force reopened the door. Uh, and so I had the best of both worlds, really. I was drawing and doing stuff I enjoyed and then flying at the weekends. It was, I was quite lucky in the end, got sponsorship and got to draw. Yeah, it was good. So you, you kind of always wanted to join the RAF? I always wanted to fly as me, um, okay. and as I've said, I said once to someone else, it's when you when you grow up in the north of England uh, in a little village near Wigan, there aren't there aren't people throwing pilots' wings at you. You know, you're not going to get a job flying Concorde. So one of the only routes open to me was to join the military, and I had an interest in the Royal Air Force from an early age. Anyway, we didn't have I'm not from a military family or anything like that, but um, yeah, I I saw it as something that would be exciting, the, the kind of flying that I would enjoy. And I was just really lucky that when I did all this sort of selection aptitude tests, I, I, they just kept not failing me. So um, you go through loophole after loophole after loophole. And eventually, um, when I was, I think, like mid-20s, they put a pair of pilot's wings on my chest and I was flying Royal Air Force helicopters. So I've just been really lucky, really. 
what was that first experience like of of actually flying a plane? Was it scary? It, it was interesting because I, I had kind of preconceived ideas about what it would be like. And like I say, we used to go um, on walking holidays. So I'd never been on, a, on like an airliner. I didn't go on one of those until the trip that, that changed me that we'll chat about later. But um, it, I was an air cadet. So I was like, I wasn't in the scouts. I went to the precursors to the scouts for like one or two nights and I hated it. And then uh, when I was a little bit older, I played a lot of outdoor sports like rugby and stuff. And I joined the Air Cadets. And it was through those guys. Through, it's, a, it's a brilliant little setup in the UK. And it's just giving people, um, younger kids, the chance to do a little bit of flying and outdoorsy stuff. And that helped get me into the Duke of Edinburgh's award scheme as well. So my first ever flight, to answer the question, was in a little glider, which looked and probably was made out of tissue paper and, and bits of wood. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and it had a little rickety engine at the front to get it into the air. And it was at a little place near where I grew up, a little uh, airfield called Salmsbury, where they where British Aerospace make really fancy fighter jets now. And I just remember trundling down the runway and my bum was probably about six inches off the floor because of this little thing. The instructor's next to me. And eventually it stopped being like shaky and bumpy and it was just incredibly smooth and firm. And that's not what I'd expected flying to feel like. And you can hear the breeze and you can, you know, you can see viscerally the, the leaves blowing past and the, the, as you sweep over the, the hedge line and things. So it was, a, it was a very nice way to be introduced to something that you kind of instinctively I was drawn to, but I didn't really know if I'd like it. I mean, I, I don't know what I'd have done if I'd got airsick. That would have been a bit of a shocker. <laughs> <laughs> you know, luckily I was all right. So that was it. It was at Salisbury up in the north of England near Preston on a rainy day when I was probably about 14, I guess, or maybe 30. So at one point, you're, so I guess you're a student, a student pilot. Is that how you would have classified yourself at that time? Yeah, when I was at art college, I was, um, yeah. I was on the university air squadron. And I, I started off as, what did we call, what were we called then? I was a bursar, so I was probably like student officer or some stupid title like that. Meant I had a little set of um, little things, epaulets that were like white and blue rather than just white or something. But it meant the Air Force was paying decent wedge for me to go and draw naked ladies at art college so I was happy (laughs) so during this time you and your fellow student pilots were asked if any of you wanted to go volunteer to go into on a winter survival training um it's called an escape and evasion challenge it yeah it was just known as winter survival school okay and and uh yeah so to, to paint the picture we were learning to fly over in Yorkshire. So I'm a, an art student in Leeds. And then every weekend, you travel up to this little airfield called Church Fenton that's, that's just closed recently. And it's quite a dusty little place with a few hangars. It was a busy airfield in the war, so it's got a bit of history. But at the time, there were just these little red and white airplanes that we used to fly. And on a Friday night, because we're all training to be in the Air Force, you have to put a tie on and you, you sit in this briefing room. And they tell you all sorts of stuff about oil pressures and temperatures and things. And you know, you try and remember it, but you're looking forward to the cheap beer afterwards, really, because you're a student. And the last thing they do is these parish notices. And uh, the, the instructor, the chief ground instructor, read out this thing. And he said something like, um, and some places have just come, uh, come up available for anyone who's interested to go on the winter survival school in Germany. And I put my hand up straight away. And then everybody in the room laughed. Because no one else, no one else had the slightest inclination to do this extra survival training, and I thought that sounds brilliant. So my hand shut up, and I'm like, "Yeah, I'm dead into that." And I just, I was a laughing stock. But it was amazing. It was like the you, people genuinely would pay good money to do that, and they were giving me the opportunity to do a little bit of travel and to learn stuff and do something pretty cool. I thought. What was it about the description of the challenge that excited you? I, so it was 
the ambiguity of it, it only, only after I kind of found out a bit more did I know the full extent of what was going to happen. But they, they said something like, it's go, you go to Germany um, and it's, they did mention, they did say that it wasn't just survival. They said that it's kind of hide and seek with soldiers and dogs looking for you, that kind of stuff. In like, oh my God. Like military speak. <laughs> and they said it would be in the wintertime, so you know it's going to be pretty grim conditions. But it just sounded like a good laugh. It sounded like really good fun. And I've not been to Germany, you know, so I was like, well, I've been past three months on an, art, on an art trip. It was barely vague, and it was only afterwards that I discovered the full extent of what we'd have to do. While I've got your attention, how does a free trip to Miami sound? Pretty good, right? Full Time Travel has teamed up with Lowe's Miami Beach Hotel to offer one lucky traveler the chance to win a weekend stay in the heart of Miami's Art Deco district. Your stay at Lowe's Miami Beach Hotel includes two nights in a luxury suite with breakfast included each morning, plus your own private poolside cabana. The winner will have 12 months to redeem their prize so they can travel in their own time whenever they feel ready. For full terms and conditions and to enter, visit fulltimetravel.co forward slash sweepstakes. That's fulltimetravel.co forward slash sweepstakes. Entries close before the end of February and a winner will be announced in early March. Good luck. So was there any sort of preparation for the challenge? Did they make put you through any trainings in, in order to actually go on the training? <laughs> that makes sense. Not really. I vaguely remember having to go to the gym at um, RF Linton Ouse. So Church Fenton's this little airfield and near York, on the other side of York Town, there's a, there was another airfield called Linton. Um, and at Linton Ouse, they had all the normal RAF facilities. So it's like lots of people in blue marching around, getting shouted at. Um, a gymnasium with uh, physical educators. And I remember having to go to the gym and speak into this, uh, this guy who probably wasn't that much older than me because I was like early 20s. And he's a, a full-time Royal Air Force physical educator. And I had this piece of paper in my hand, my joining instructions for the course that I'm clutching. And uh, it said I had to achieve a certain fitness standard. And uh, I went and spoke to him. And I was playing quite a lot of sports, so I was in reasonable shape. And the guy said, uh, just looked at me and goes, how far did you go running? And I made up some number. How often did you do that? And I made up another frequency because clearly when you're an art student, most of your running is to the bar in the local pub, isn't it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he looked at me and he thought, he thought oh, what was the worst that could happen? You know, no one's going to find out that this PTI, as they're called, in Linton O's signed off this idiot. So he just signed my piece of paper and let me go. And then the other thing I had to do was I had to go to the supply section. So there were certain items that you had to bring. Because when we're flying, we've got this like... Um, like a onesie, a fireproof onesie, let's call it, but it's like a boiler suit, a flying, a flight suit in America, or a flying suit in the UK language. Um, and you weren't allowed to use your flying one, you had to get a spare one, because there's a decent amount of rips and tears as you cry, you know, crawling through hedges and climbing over barbed wire fences and stuff. So I had to get one of those, which meant I had to go to the supply section. The militaries around the world cried themselves, I'm not giving you anything. So that was, that was mm. awkward because so I'm like the lowest of the low in terms of rank. And I'm going, essentially asking a favor of these really old sweats who are just looking at me like, what are you doing? What? Why? Um, and I remember they gave me this little orange pouch with stuff in it. And I never used any of it. But, you know, that was me. That was my training, my prep. Go to the stores, get laughed at. Go to the gym, get laughed at. Get laughed at in, in the uh, squadron briefing. And then I went, eventually went and got on a bus and went down there. And how long was it between them asking if you wanted to go or you raising your hand and actually leaving for Germany? It wasn't long. It was about, because uh, it was a late notice thing that spaces had become available. And I only found out years later, um, in, in a kind of more serious note, that there'd been an accident. So they, they used to drop the students off by helicopter. 
and there'd been a serious accident where a helicopter, the, the same type I ended up flying actually, um, had got into recirculating snow as it landed and the, the, they lost their visual references at night. So the guys are working really hard on night vision goggles and the recirculating snow had caused a problem. And unfortunately, as they um, had their accident, the helicopter then slid down this um, sort of icy slope into a, um, a little lake and uh, one or two of the guys didn't make it out. No. Yeah, uh, I didn't know that at the time. And it wouldn't have, you know, when you're young, it probably wouldn't have changed my decision. <laughs> and I can't decide whether you're like, you were very brave or very naive or some combination of the two. Definitely naive, that's me, <laughs> definitely. Um, so yeah, the the kind of, the, the journey down the prep phase wasn't, wasn't brilliant and wasn't very in-depth, but um, yeah. So you arrive in Germany did you arrive on a commercial flight or did you kind of parachute in and enter the simulation immediately? <laughs> no, the trip over was brilliant. I still remember that quite vividly. We, um, the course, there was 24 of us on the course and we sort of assembled at, I think it was at Stansted Airport. And I just, as part of my design course, I'd just done a piece about Norman Foster's work as the architect who designed, Sir Norman Foster, I should say, who designed Stansted Airport. Um, so I was on, my eyes were on stalk. So I'd never been to a proper airport. Um, I'd only been to like military airfields. I'd just done a thesis piece all about that design. So I was really admiring the stanchions that are holding the lightweight roof up and how all the air conditioning was <laughs> under the floor and not on the ceiling. And all the guys I was with just wanted to get to the bar. So that was my education between like, um, being an art student and being a member of the Royal Air Force, I suppose. Because I travelled over there with 24, well, 23 other students. Uh, we flew over on a, a normal aeroplane to a, an airfield in Germany. We overnighted at what is, that, what is now, you know, the NATO headquarters in Germany and then got a bus down with raging hangovers because that was my first proper experience of German beer. Um, but I do remember the travel down. As we went down by coach, seeing the sort of my first sight of, like, uh, buildings that look like Swiss clocks, you know, cooking mm -hmm. clocks. You see those Alpine buildings. And then in the distance, you get your first glimpse of a, a mountain that's topped with snow. And it just, because I knew what I was going to be doing, I just couldn't help but think of the Great Escape movie and the sort of final scenes in that, because it looked just like that landscape. Amazing. And what, what is Bavaria actually like in winter? How cold does it get? How rough were the conditions? We were lucky, it turned out. It was, well, it depends on your point of view, I guess. So it was about zero uh, Celsius, so freezing point while I was there on my course. And I eventually, not, not that long after, really, because of my, my current job, I ended up going back to run that training. And I've been there when it's been sort of minus 15 Celsius, minus 20. So, Oof. you know, cold enough, cold enough to be uncomfortable. And if you're not careful and you don't look after yourself properly to get a kind of a cold weather injury. While I was there, it was the more sucky end of the spectrum because everything was like freezing at night and thawing in the daytime. So it was a combination of like slush and mud. Oh, great. <laughs> Season, yeah, he's, and, it, and oh, mate, some of the mud stank as well. I don't know what we walked through in the dark. I know you can't exactly say like precisely what you did, but can you talk a bit about some of the challenges and surprises that you experienced during the training? Yeah, and, and there's what I'll what I'll talk about isn't in no way going to compromise anything classified. So the, the things that I'll chat about, you know, I obviously won't touch on the things that I shouldn't talk about, but there's enough stuff, open source information from um, the military that. What, I'm, what I'll describe isn't going to compromise anything. So it was, um, it was a kind of a, a training area that the Royal Air Force had been using since the end of the Second World War. So I'm there mid-90s, and we've been using this area for 50 years. It's an amazing opportunity because 
and you would never get this again now. You would never be able to approach anywhere and say, uh, excuse me, local population, we'd quite like to use probably 30 square miles of your countryside, towns, villages, rivers, all your infrastructure, and we're going to essentially play a massive game of hide and seek. Um, and if you wouldn't mind can we borrow some of your soldiers because it's much more authentic if they shout at them in German these these Royal Air Force pilots you know they're a a bit of a kind of they prefer hotels shall we say to sleep in hedges so it was it was an enormous area that we got to play out in and it like all there's a a bit of a misconception about military survival training and it, it probably born from previous truth but we don't my job now is to train the instructors we do not push people in at the deep end you know you get taught the theory, then you get taught to crawl, then to walk, and then to run. And so it was pretty similar back then. The, the staff were excellent. They showed us some techniques of how to um, maintain your body temperature, first and foremost, maintain a little place to live, um, how to light a fire, how to obtain water, how to obtain food. And then gradually, gradually, over the course of a couple of days, they just ratcheted that up so that you were doing all those things while someone's trying to catch you, while you're being hunted. So you start with the basics and then you apply them into a, a, an evasion and extraction, as we now call it. But back then it was just combat survival. So you, you just learn how to build dens, light fires, sneak about, move through the countryside, and nobody should know that you're there. And, I'd, you know, we were quite, by the end of it, we were quite pumped up to get dropped off and, and do it because you feel ready. Um, and th- as well as that, because it's such a brilliant area, we were also kind of playing quite hard in the evenings as well so if we weren't on a night exercise we'd just go to the local bar and i learned so much about like obnoxious drinking games from the guys on the course but it was <laughs> it was it made it more realistic because if you're trying to do these sorts of things with a raging hangover it's a lot more difficult oh god yeah i'm trying to think if i've ever the closest i've ever come to something similar and i think maybe paint paintballing is like the only thing i can think of which is not I mean not similar but you know what I mean but and I was so nervous (laughs) doing it I was fully crawling on the floor so I was pretty terrified did you get feel anxious at all or like do you have a lot of adrenaline or were you quite chilled oh so when we when we first got dropped off so that's the training phase for it and then the exercise happens and yeah you're pretty you're pretty uh well I I'd never done anything like it so I was like you 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 drive in emotion is not letting the other guys down and I was paired with this guy called Robbo, brilliant bloke, and he was hilarious. So we spent most, I spent most of my time trying not to laugh out loud because some of his stories were hilarious. But <laughs> the, 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 when, the night when we got dropped off, you, you don't know who's there, who's listening out, who's waiting for you to jump out, you know, to step, you step foot on a path. So it's, it really does heighten your, your senses. And it's going to sound cliche, but it, it, it's, sort, it's true. You, if you're being hunted, you pay so much more attention. And it really, really makes you tune into your environment. So we would, we would stop every so often to find out what was going on. But instead of stopping and just sort of, I don't know, casting our vision across the, the landscape, because it was dark and you couldn't put the lights on, we didn't know if we'd been watched. So we'd move incredibly slowly and quietly. We'd then stop and really quietly kneel down. And then we'd open our mouth slightly because that makes your ears more effective. And we'd just listen and look for five or ten minutes and if we heard a twig snap, we'd wait a little bit longer. And there was one point in a woodline, because Bavaria, as you probably know, is like a patchwork of coniferous forests with open grassland in between, and then these lovely little cuckoo clock houses and farms. We, we had to cross roads. We, I remember at one point walking through the middle of a little town, dressed in pilot clothes with camouflage cream on your face, and just <laughs> the dead of night. But I remember being in a woodline, 
And um, we were just, me and Robbo had just stopped. We're listening, waiting. And then we heard a twig snap. So we just put, a, I think he put a hand on my shoulder because I was in front. And then this noise. And it, it sounded like a full-size sofa or couch had just crashed past us through the woods. But it was so inky dark, you couldn't see a thing. And it must have been a wild boar because they're in that area. And we'd gone near where it was. It didn't like it. And it charged past at 100 miles an hour. And that, that puts the wind up you if you're at night and you're being hunted and you don't know what's around and a wild boar charges past within about two metres of you. So that was fairly, that, that changed your heart rate up a notch straight away. You were lucky you didn't get gouged. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, totally. But that's like, like you said earlier, naive ignorance is bliss, isn't it? I haven't even considered might get gouged by a wild boar. That was not on my radar at all. I'm just like sort of crawling around this German wood with a guy I'm now good mates with, hoping that we don't get caught because that'd be embarrassing. Didn't think about getting gored to death. <laughs> oh my God. I want to go back to something you just said quickly, that if you open your mouth slightly, then you can hear better. Say more about that, because that's a good little tip. Yeah, well, there's a few of those sorts of things. So you, you probably know the, the way your, your eyes work. And, and we, um, we know that if you want to see something more clearly, you, you don't look straight at it at night because your rods and cones are dispersed differently and you, you're using the outer edge of the, um, the back of your eye. So if you wanted to look at something in the dark, when your night vision's kicked in, if you were looking, let's say, like I was doing, I was looking to see where Robbo was because it was you know, literally outside of arm's reach. It was so dark, you would lose sight of someone. You just look slightly to the right or left. And then they sort of appear in focus because the blind spot is where you, you pointed your eyes. So you point your blind spot away from the person. You kind of gauge where they are with your peripheral vision. And then when we come to a stop and we, we sort of settle in to tune into the environment, opening your mouth just lets your eardrums move ever so slightly more freely because there's no pressure, you know, resisting it inside your head. And you also, what you can do then is, of course, as you probably remember from other things that you've done, is if you close your eyes at that point, open your mouth slightly, and then move your head ever so slowly from side to side, you start to hear directionally as well. You really tune into your sense of hearing. It's one of those good things to do to relax as well, bizarrely. Um, and you start to detect not only the sounds that are around you in your environment, but also where they're coming from. And what you're trying to do, I guess, is build up a kind of a 3D scan of your environment so that you can be alerted to any threats or opportunities. That's so interesting. I mean, this is going off on a tangent now, but have you heard of the Batman? Have I heard of what, sorry? The Batman. <laughs> Surely you don't mean Bruce Wayne. <laughs> Not that bad, man. Oh, he's, he's a guy who's blind and essentially he, can, he uses these clicks and he's, he can almost like see visual images because he can hear it, the sound like bouncing off of his surroundings. And so he can kind of see the landscape around him. It's fascinating. Yes, I think I've seen a TV show where they were, they were looking at the guy and it, it, it's almost like dolphin noise, isn't it? That he... mm, yeah. Yeah, sorry, mate. Obviously, you're not talking about Bruce Wayne. <laughs> I should have explained more, though. I don't know. I just assumed you'd know what I was talking about. <laughs> so, sorry, I totally interrupted you. You weren't done with your with your story. Oh, yeah. Well, so you, you asked about, like, ways to pick up more about environment. And then mm -hmm. some of the things that we, we... I remember improvising while we were, while we were walking. The snow had slightly melted inside the, the forest at, at this point. Um, and as we, we scuffed our feet across the ground, it seemed to like energize or activate some phosphorescence. And I, I don't to this day know if it was like in the that. snow. No, in the kind of the earth. So, oh. um, so the, so the forest soil, so it's a coniferous forest with um, kind of a really loose, lonely soil. And the, this area that we're in must have been on like a, um, a south facing slope. And during the daylight hours, 
the sun had melted all the snow. And as we moved in the, in the inky dark of night, the, um, you scuff at the ground and it activates the phosphorescence, which is maybe a fungi that was living around at the root of the trees or possibly an insect, but it was, I don't know. Anyway, these little green dots appeared. And as, it's quite disorientating because the sky was dark, but the, there were some stars out. And as you look to the forest floor, it's almost like a reflection of the sky with all these little green dots of luminescence. And it's only because our nights were fully adapted that we managed to see them. And uh, what we ended up doing was we picked these little green specks up, a little bit like a glowfly, but nowhere near as bright. And we put them on the back of um, our rucksack, just a tiny dot so that if I was following Robbo, I could see the green dot on his rucksack. And if he was following me, he could see mine. And I should add at this point, the rucksacks that we had were tiny and there was hardly anything in them. It's just more or less like the minimum the staff would give us so that we didn't die. You know, so they, they wanted us to experience true hardship. They didn't want us to, to have it <laughs> easy. So we had like, <laughs> like a woolly jumper and something like a plastic bag or something. But these little green dots were, were great. And then like talking about senses, I suppose, there was a moment where I was, we'd been on the go. I don't know what time it was, but I do remember at one point watching, you know, the dawn rise and we hadn't got anywhere near where we were supposed to be getting. Um, watching the green dot on Robbo's back and he must have heard something because he stopped and I started to stare at this little green dot on his rucksack and there's just a black silhouette of Robbo there's the black trees there's the darkness of the, the forest floor out just off to the left hand side was an open pasture which is a slightly less dark gray and this green dot on his back started to kind of to move a bit and so I saw I remember squinting and leaning towards it to look at it and then it, it kind of grew eyes, and this is going to sound stupid, but I, I ended up, it ended up turning in my, in my brain. It turned into like a, a neon cartoon wasp, like an outline of a stylized little buzzy fly that you might get in a kid's cartoon. And it started looking at me, and then it started to move, and then I felt the wind really pick up past my ears. Like if you've ever been sort of um, going down a hill on your bike or something, the wind's like, oh, that's so weird. And that, that was when my face hit the floor. It was the, and it was the first time I'd ever fallen asleep standing up. And I kind of crossed oh. over from looking at this green thing to having a dream to face planting on the forest floor. <laughs> it was like, oh, my God. <laughs> it, was, um, it was the most tired I've ever been. And, and I've been, you know, we've all had tired, been tired and stuff, but I'd never fallen asleep standing up before. So it was that, that training package taught me more than just sort of sneaking around and avoiding German soldiers. It was really about knowing my own limits as well and knowing, like, where I suppose the red lines in our performance lie in. I'd been up for hours. I mean, it was a 5 a.m. start and it was probably nearly 5 a.m. the next, you know, 24 hours later that, that this happened. Oh my God. So obviously it's extremely physically demanding. I mean, you fell asleep standing up. That's got to be a first. But also, you know, with the right mental state, we can obviously push our bodies to persevere in ways that might seem unimaginable until we're actually in the situation that requires it. Um, how did you like dig deep and find that mental focus and that fortitude that allowed you to push through and succeed at your mission? So that was my first experience of, of hitting one of the red lines in my own physical performance. And I think this is one of those things that only, only comes with experience. And there are two ways I, I know of to get experience. One is you, 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 know, you go out and you develop these um, autobiographical memories in context like I, I did there. And the other way that I quickly picked up upon is it's far easier to learn by the mistakes of others so i began i trained not long after this to become a survival instructor because i really enjoyed it bizarrely and uh, <laughs> learning about how other people had endured and, I, and how they had endured far worse things than i'd had to do because we were literally just learning um to, to sneak about and we were out for a few nights and you know there were dogs and people looking for us and it wasn't particularly pleasant but it wasn't as bad as it could have been 
and I got quite into finding out about what other people had done in real life and and certainly some um, some foreign guys as well like guys in, in um, from the American Air Force who'd struggled through the, the jungles of Southeast Asia or the Vietnam War that kind of thing and, and learning what people can do and there's a guy called Lance Sajon who made it for over 40 days with a broken arm a broken leg and a fractured skull through oh the sweaty God. stinky jungles of Laos yeah and he managed to do that on his back just by pushing himself along one heel push at a time for 43 days and he was motivated to get back to see a, a girl he'd fallen in love with you know an airline hostess who'd taken him over into, into the country and if you know that the, the, the physical performance of the human body is so extreme, it can do such amazing things, and other people have proved that for us, then you don't have to test yourself to destruction to know that. You just know that if there's a little bit more you can do, if you can put a little bit more effort in, what that does is it generates a sense of control over our environment. And what psychologists far brighter than, um, than me or my colleagues have discovered it was an American psychologist who first came upon it, is that hopelessness or, or a, a feeling that you can't go any further, that kind of I want to give in, that, that hopelessness, the thing that would put out your, your candle is born from suffering, but it's not just suffering on its own. It's suffering that you feel like you can't control. So if you've got some suffering in your world and you really, really feel like you can't control it, then maybe, maybe that will make you give up. But importantly if you feel like you can control even one part of the suffering then you won't give up you know it's on us to not give up and if you feel like you've got a little bit of control then you don't give in and the way to not give in and the way to exert that control is just to get yourself a little bit closer to your goal and what Lance Sajon did with his heels by pushing himself like one yard at a time for 43 days gave him a sense of control a feeling of control over his suffering and when I was doing my mini version of it in a German forest by walking one step in front of the other quietly, I felt like I was getting nearer to my goal. And I've certainly employed that since in some of the kind of survival telly stuff I've had to do, where you're being scrutinized by the camera, which you know in turn relays it to millions of eyes. And you don't want to look like an idiot in front of your <laughs> peer group. So if you can control your suffering by just putting in a little bit of effort, that will then make sure you maintain your hope. And all hope is, is a, a kind of a view of the future that involves yourself. So if you can plan for the future, put a few little things together, Look after that hope candle by controlling your environment one step at a time. That's what I've learned over the years since. That's kind of, that's my golden nugget, really, from 20-odd years of teaching survival, is that if you can just put enough little bits of effort in to control your scenario, then you won't lose hope. Interesting. And how much for the guy who pushed himself, like, inch by inch with his heels, how, I mean, do you think it was important for him to have this goal of seeing this woman again? Like, is it, does it help to have a sense of purpose that you're doing it for somebody or for something? Yeah, and, and it, it varies from individual to individual. So psychological hooks, I, I know them as, but something that you can um, use as a carrot, to, to, as a goal to work towards, and it varies by individual. So um, it may be a loved one, it may be um, a family member or someone that, you, you know, a romantic partner, or it could be something like a belief in a system, be that in your country or, or in a religion, um, but something that burns deeply inside your chest that you believe in and that you want to see again or do again. That kind of psychological hook is, is often enough to keep people going. And all that that does is it gives them a small kick to start the process of putting in a bit of effort because they've got that ultimate goal. The trick really is like most things in life, it's not to consider the entire problem as one big thing. 
it's to look at it as a series of little things. So if you can use that psychological hook as your end goal, and as long as you've got that as a, you sort of your, your distant sunlight, what you can do between that horizon and yourself is just build little stepping stone lily pad goals to get you there. And that is often like one meter at a time or I'll get to the next wood. Or if it's something in your life, I'll just get to the weekend um, and it will get better eventually. And, and a combination of a few of those little types of techniques is what I've used. And it certainly works for me. And I know others who've, um, who've got into that, te- that kind of thing have written to me and said that it's worked really well for them in all kinds of things, Esme, not just like, you know, uh, wilderness and travel, but people suffering awful things like bereavements or, or, um, or illnesses, you know, PTSD for some of the guys and girls who've been in touch. So, yeah, having a distant goal that's, that's a psychological hook and making sure you build little stepping stone goals to get there that are like waypoints on your journey. And they can be metaphorical, but, you know, breaking the big task down because a wise man once told me that survival is not a big thing. It's just a series of little things. And it's, it's really true. That. Oh, I love that. And obviously this training in Bavaria, it massively influenced you and it shaped your career. And you would go on to become British military's chief survival evasion resistance and extraction instructor. Um, I'm curious to know, now that you're leading these kinds of trainings, can you tell who is going to suck and who is going to excel at survival? (laughs) So um, it's very difficult to judge books by their cover, but... But you, you can, I can, I can sort of judge eventually how, how well someone will do if they don't kind of alter their approach. And if you think of it as like effort and talent. So it's a myth that talent will get you through. It really is. There's, um, there's something called the growth mindset that you've got to have. You can't just rely on any kind of natural ability or early head start in anything. And that's certainly true of the new survival instructors that I, um, I take under our wing and we train. So if you think that talent's enough, then you're going to come a cropper eventually. The people who succeed in in my little realm of teaching new instructors are really often the ones who found it very, very difficult at first. And that that kind of character, the someone who's really struggling at first, tends to become brilliant if, and there is always an if, if they put enough effort in. And what we do in my little team is we always encourage people by praising effort, never by praising talent. So mm. if someone's putting effort in, we'll praise that because that encourages them to do well. And this has been borne out by far brighter minds than mine. So Carol Dweck famously wrote about experiments that she's done with school children. Um, and and they, they do uh, sort of mock exams and she praises them for talent and they eventually peter out and do worse. And she does the same exam with another group of students and she only praises their effort and they do better and better and better. And it works through all strands of life. So I can't necessarily tell when I first encounter somebody how well they'll They'll perform eventually, but if they're struggling and they put the effort in, they'll do really well. If they're doing very well and they keep putting effort in, then yeah, even better. The people who struggle are the ones who can't be bothered. And that's true of most things, isn't it, Esme? <laughs> it is, yeah. So you think that resilience can be taught? Definitely, 100%. So survival training, think of the stuff that we do as just being preparing guys and girls for a really horrific day out camping in a, in a situation that they didn't want to be in without any camping kit where the, the people in the local area are trying to catch them and they didn't want to be there. It's just something they have to do as part of their job. You know, they, they don't, they're not doing it because they're necessarily mad keen about the great outdoors and travel. They're doing it because they have to. But by doing a little bit of training, by experiencing the sort of little hardships that I experienced when I first did my course, it inoculates you against it for the future. So 
uh, if you were plunged into this kind of scenario, real world, and you had no training, then it would be really, really difficult. But if you had the opportunity to measure yourself against that task, even if you found it really, really hard, the fact that you came away from it, you know that it didn't kill you, and it, therefore it will have made you learn a bit. And you know, it, colloquially, it will make you a little bit stronger. And we just know it's hardship inoculation now. You just do a little bit of something that's slightly difficult. You don't push people too far too soon. Keep stretching out of that comfort zone a little bit at a time. And by the end of the week, people who've never been camping before are living in a pile of sticks that they've made themselves with a little fire in front of it, boiling water and having a like rabbit stew. And yeah, they want to go home. And it was kind of <laughs> be type two fun that they'll appreciate afterwards. But they've not died. They've done well. They've made themselves as comfortable as they possibly can. So if the worst happened in the future, they'll be okay. And they wouldn't have thought that was possible at the start of the week. Everyone has a few self-doubts when these things begin. But you can definitely teach it to people and it can be learned. I love all of these psychological terms you're using. So now that you've been in survival situations all over the globe, how do different types of topography and environments compare? Like which is the most inhospitable environment imaginable for humans? Oh, wow. We, we kind of break the, the stuff we do down into, into neat compartments and we teach a system that can be applied absolutely anywhere. You know, it, it isn't bushcraft. The stuff you see on TV is people reaching around in wilderness uh, because they want to and they're having a great time and they're learning local skills and, and, and stuff. And it's a great way to engage with nature um, and local communities and potentially, you know, uh, a productive form of tourism for them as long as it's not too exploitative and all that kind of good stuff. But the stuff we teach, it, it is impossible to give people a bushcraft download for the entire planet. It's just too much. No one knows that much about the entire world. Nobody does. It's just, it, there are just too many things to learn, too many plants to learn. So we teach people a, like a skeleton key that they can apply anywhere. And it's true absolutely anywhere. So if you go somewhere really cold and dry, like the top of the, the planet, where I've been lucky enough to go with the Canadian forces, it was like minus 64 when I was up there. So, Oh, my God. That's terrible. <laughs> Yeah. It was in the newspaper. It was like colder than Mars one week when I was up there with them. And so even things like, as routine, something as routine, without being too gross, as going to the toilet, if you get it wrong, it's a life-changing experience. So you've got to, <laughs> you, know, you really have to think about what you're doing. So cold and dry or cold and wet or warm and dry or like a desert, warm and wet like a jungle. The hardest place that we teach people to survive in is just the sea. Because if you don't have the right equipment, you will die in the sea. And the Royal Air Force that I'm a member of, you know, it started its survival training after the Battle of Britain because eight out of 10 pilots that landed in the English Channel in the summer were never seen again. So, and, and you think about that these days, it's horrific. You know, if eight out of 10 people in, in a flight of airplanes bailed out over the sea, which is only a few miles off the English coast in June, July, August, September, and they were never seen again. It just proves how harsh an environment it is. So it's not the glamorous answer. Like the, you know, I've been to some really cool places like the Arctic and some really hot places like the uh, Atacama Desert. But the hardest place to survive is probably the English Channel in the winter. Mm, that does actually make sense. How, so how do you survive if you're in the ocean? Well, you've got to have the right equipment first and foremost. Mm. So our guys and girls will only ever fly with the right amount of protective layers so they're creating a habitat and a little life raft that they sit on in their, on their ejection seat. Um, so once they eject from their extremely expensive aeroplane, they're sat under a parachute and then below them is dangling a life raft. So we teach them how to get out the parachute harness, get into the life raft um, and get rescued. For normal folk like you and I, as me, if you do <laughs> find yourself unfortunately in cold water, don't be tempted to strip off layers. Just try and float and keep you calm. Um, 
keep calm and keep your breathing at a nice regular rate and hope that you're going to be spotted by someone and attract, attract some attention. You know, uh, So key thing is prevention is better than cure. But floating, the Royal National Lifeboat Institution in the UK, the RNLI, have got a brilliant campaign about floating if you get into difficulty. Because most of these fatalities actually occur within about three metres of a safe refuge, off the side of a boat, off a That's key, crazy. A riverbank. Yeah, it's mental, isn't it? It's one of the biggest killers globally, drowning. <laughs> so yeah, um, if you do find yourself inadvertently falling into cold water, hold your breath for as long as you can, get back to the surface, and then just float on your back. And hope the sharks don't come. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's it. I'd love to touch a bit on the pandemic. Right. Obviously, it's a very different type of situation, but I think it's kind of pushed a lot of us to the brink mentally. And, you know, we're kind of learning to survive this thing that's scary and unknown and very new to us. It's a new environment. Is there any advice that you could give people to help persevere through this moment of hardship that we're all experiencing? Yeah, I think so. And it kind of ties back to what we spoke about a moment ago, really. I mean, you've, got, you've got that little engine of, of hope, work, and, and plan that I, I call the survival triangle. So if you can maintain your hope by setting yourself a little, a little goal in the future, then you can plan for what you'll do next. And all you've got to do once you've got your plan is a little bit of effort. Effort controls your environment. That inculcates hope. Hope allows you to plan. Plan allows you to do the work. Work allows you to hope, plan, work, hope, plan, work. You can apply that model, like I said earlier, the skeleton key of the military survival thing can be applied absolutely anywhere. And it's true at the moment because, bizarrely, when we're teaching military students to survive in the wilderness, we just call it being isolated. You know, we're prepping them for isolation. That's, the, that's been the jargon for years. And it's really prescient at the moment because isolation at the moment is a kind of hardship inoculation for everyone else. So knowing that ultimately this hardship will end, you know, it's going to be different for a while, but eventually it will get better. Knowing that once you pop out of this little cocoon, things that you, th- you found easy before will be tricky at first. So not trying to do too much too soon, setting reasonable goals, not too high targets. Knowing that it will get better eventually and that things will become more normal again at some point is your end goal. And then all you've got to do between there and now is just find things that you can do that will um, be productive and not make you, I suppose, lose your hope. So setting up a routine has been found to be really, really helpful. And these are things that people know already, I'm sure. But guys in isolation, what they've found, and the kind of specialists at this are people who choose to be isolated for their career. So uh, astronauts in the space station or people in the past who used to work in lighthouses. What they found was a really good way to build a little pattern into their day was to get in touch. And a lighthouse keeper, there would be three of them in a lighthouse. And um, after their shift, before their shift officially finished, they wake up the next person, make a massive pot of tea, and just sit and chat to them for half an hour so that they were fully awake and alert for their shift. And it also meant, you know, you'd done the right thing by your friends. And I think that's the, the gift of modern technology means you never really need to be totally isolated anymore. If there's someone that you know who's kind of out on their own, out on a limb, just be a lighthouse keeper, give them a quick call, maybe spend just half an hour over a virtual copper and, and chat and check in. And if you ever struggle to find what to do in the work hope plan cycle, one of the best things you can do is just make a cup of tea because it's a routine activity. You're making, if you're in the wilderness, you're making the water safe, but in a kind of a domestic setting, making a cup of tea is great because the caffeine in it will lift your kind of mood and enthusiasm. It's got another compound in it called L-theanine, which you don't get in coffee. And what that does is it releases the caffeine more slowly. So you get a more, um, a longer burn, if you like. 
And if you don't normally take sugar in your tea, then put a little bit of sugar in because your brain uses loads of glucose. Um, and a little dab of it in your tea will just make your brain a little bit more alert. Um, and if you want to do something constructive, read a book. It's been found, like I think it's like 700 times more effective than other things, such as like online gaming or, or listening to music even. Found, been found to be far more effective as a way of de-stressing. And we could all do with a bit less stress, I think, at the moment, as we Absolutely. I'm smiling so hard because, <laughs> yeah, never underestimate English people and their tea. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. It's like, to get it. <laughs> yeah. Feeling sad? Make a cup of tea. Feeling lonely? Make a cup of tea. <laughs> exactly. There you go. That's it. You've obviously read the British Survival Manual. <laughs> I love it. Um, your new book, Survive, Self-Reliance in Extreme Circumstances, came out in January in the US. Can you tell us a bit more about that? It's, it's, it's a lot of what we've touched upon here, really. So how to survive, it isn't a survival manual. I, mean, I wrote the survival manual that the UK military uses, and it's like that's a 200,000-word tome all about how to not die in various extreme scenarios and sneak about and get rescued if you're in hostile territory. What how to survive is about is the stuff we've spoken about. Fundamentally, it's about how to persevere through really hard times, how to find that extra step when things are very difficult. And I don't, it's not a preachy book, hopefully. Um, I tried to use cool stories and historical examples from inspirational people like Juliana Kirpka, who fell three miles through the sky into the Peruvian Andes um, when she was 17 and crawled out of the jungle 11 days later. So it's learning from people like that, how we as mere mortals can just do a little bit more, be a little bit tougher mentally and get to the end of our task list. And it's not all about surviving in the wilderness. So there are some, what I think are cool stories in there about wilderness survival. It's all mostly about how we as individuals can apply that concept to our day-to-day life. I love it. And to sum everything up, how would you say this trip changed your life? The trip that changed my trip to Germany to sneak about, it opened a whole new world up to me about military survival training and inculcating a sense of perseverance that you can get through tough stuff. That's what changed for me. I love it. John, thank you so much. You've been amazing. It's been delightful to speak to you. Oh, thanks, Esme. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a Sorry I've been on transmit so much. <laughs> no, well, I'm like, it's so fascinated by everything you, you've said. I like need to read the book now. Where can people find you on the internet? JohnHudsonSurvival.com is probably the best bet. Instagram or anything? Oh, yeah, that's right. Social media. I'm hopeless. <laughs> I'm hopeless. But yeah, I've got Instagram accounts. I think that's John Hudson Survival. And I'm on Twitter as well, JH Survival. But yeah, I'm, I'm mostly to be found sort of um, drinking a cup of tea and, and not looking at the internet at the moment. But yeah, johnhudsonsurvival.com would be a good place. <laughs> drinking a cup of tea and not looking at the internet is, yeah, survival lesson in itself. <laughs> exactly. Before you go, I'd love to do a quick fire round. Right, yeah. Okay, <laughs> so what's the one thing you never, ever travel without? I normally, so there's a physical thing. I would always have a, a waterproof notebook just because of the stuff I do and where I go and having to learn stuff. But I always, I always try to travel with like good manners. I always try to learn a few kind of thank yous and pleases and things because tra- the best part of travel is the people and you know, you've got to do the right thing by the locals, haven't you? Excellent answer. I don't think anyone's ever said that before. Um, <laughs> what's the one thing you think everybody should experience in their lifetime? 
Well, and I would say this because I'm a survival instructor, and I think everyone has now. So a little bit of challenge, a little bit of stretch, or dare I say it, hardship. You know that hardship inoculation thing we chatted about? I think we've all had a little bit from this pandemic, some far more than others. But I, I guarantee, I guarantee when things get back to an even keel, we'll take things that we used to take for granted and we'll save them a lot more deeply. So yeah, a little bit of hardship inoculation. Mm, I agree. I keep telling myself that all of the stress and trials and tribulations of this year, that, you know, that there's no story without the struggle, right? No one wants to read someone's biography if it's just like, and then I lived happily ever after and it was all easy and great. And I won the lottery again. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if you could teleport somewhere just for the day, where would you go and what would you do? Ooh. Oh, I think at the moment I'd go and see my family because we're right down in the southwest of Cornwall and my uh, my rallies are all up, up north where I hail from. So I'd probably do that cliche thing and see my family, especially at the moment. When was the last time you saw them? Ooh, September. It's now, what, February? So, you know, a little while ago. Oh, yeah. I feel you. Aisle or window seat? A window, definitely. Same. Beach, mountains or city? Ooh. beach let's say beach I was expecting you to say mountains yeah I nearly did but then I was like oh, I don't know I quite like to sort of I, in my head the beach I chose was one on Grenada called La Sagesse because they do an amazing rum cocktail so I'm gonna say that I can't I can't picture you being like a lie on the sun lounger for a week and drink cocktails and read a book kind of guy I, I imagine you'd be more active than that <laughs> <laughs> I quite like surfing. I mean, that's, you're not oh, going to yeah. get uh, surfing in Grenada, but yeah, it would probably be a surfing holiday rather than a snowboarding thing because I'm rubbish at that. What's your favourite place of all time to vacation? I still really like places in the UK. I love exploring the island I live on because there's so many little hidden folds, valleys and, and, um, and dare I say it, beaches over here. So um, I like just camper vanning around the UK, finding somewhere I've not been to before here. Do you have like a favourite place in the UK? I love the Lake District up in mm. the northwest. Love that part of the UK. Have you been to the lakes? I have. I went once. It's so gorgeous there. I love it. Yeah. So that, that's probably a very firm favorite. Good choice. Is there one piece of content, like a book, show, movie, or podcast, that you'd recommend for a long haul flight? Back to what we spoke about a moment ago. Um, there's a guy, an artist called Peter Hill, who's written a book called Stargazing. And he was a lighthouse keeper when he was a really young bloke. Um, and it's a fantastic read because he describes that isolation, but that camaraderie and isolation on little islands off the coast of Scotland. It sounds really dull, but it's a really well-written book. So Stargazing by Peter Hill, I think. And what's the first place you'll visit once the pandemic is over? Oh, probably, probably a beer garden. I think just <laughs> any beer garden will do. <laughs> exactly. Just a, a nice beer garden with a decent view, probably somewhere in the south of the UK where the sun's out and you can see a long way while you, while, you know, you, you savor that first post lockdown point. Oh, that sounds great. Hopefully it will be in the very near future. <laughs> yes. What about you? Where's the first place you'd like to go? Oh my goodness. I am thinking about Thailand, which is one of my, favorite all-time places I've been like seven or eight times now um, and so it's like somewhere that I always think about when I'm when I'm feeling a bit down as well like just thinking about it makes me feel better you know yeah yeah definitely so hopefully Thailand will be in my future soon good fingers crossed <laughs> fingers crossed 
A brand new edition of John's first book, How to Survive, Self-Reliance in Extreme Circumstances, was released on January 5th in North America and details strategies for life or death situations that can help us excel in our everyday lives. In How to Survive a Pandemic, a free ebook which also appears as an appendix in the US paperback edition, John provides a timely guide for coping with the COVID-19 crisis we are currently facing and how to come out of self-isolation stronger and wiser. You can find his book at all good bookstores. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I hope you liked it. You can learn more about us by visiting fulltimetravel.co or following us on Instagram at full underscore time underscore travel. If you have a story you want to share on the trip that changed me, drop us a line. And please be sure to rate, review and subscribe so we can keep this adventure going.